This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. Celebrating 150 years of college football. Gentlemen, this is a prolate spheroid. Better to have died as a small boy than to fumble this football. John Heisman would begin the football season with this introduction. John Heisman, like the trophy. He was born in 1869, the same year that Princeton and Rutgers played what's now remembered as the first ever college football game. And he'd grow to become one of the sport's great early pioneers, though not in the Northeast, where it originally bloomed as a popular pastime. No, John Heisman made his legend in the South. Where in the years after the Civil War, they didn't merely embrace football. They needed it.
after the Civil War, the South undergoes a huge economic collapse, but it also has a huge psychic collapse. One out of every five males between the ages of 18 and 45 is killed. If you fail economically, if you fail in war, where do you take bride? Where do you find a place of saying, hey, we're proud to be Southerners? I think the South definitely had a chip on its shoulder after the Civil War. You mix that chip on its shoulder with the masculinity of wanting to be the best. Oh God, I'm good as you are. Oh God, I'm better than you are. I think it transferred over into football. Football was strongly identified with the New South movement. This was a movement of business progressives who want to remake the South in the image of the North. They said openly and proudly that slavery held the South back. We now need to move on. We need to industrialize, urbanize, remake our society in the image of the North. But the way that they took that bitter pill and sugar-coated it is by creating the entire myth of the lost cause. During the 1890s, we begin to see the erection of monuments and memorials to the Civil War dead. And football, it is as close to replicating the combat experience as you're, you're likely to find. It was to be the next best thing to warfare. A martial engagement, a game to be sure, but with, uh, but with high stakes. There was a great concern among the parentage of the South that their children were becoming too soft, that industrialization and office jobs are going to have an innervating effect on their physicality, on their spirit. But football is a means of inculcating vigor, masculine vigor, into a new generation of young men. A lot of the Southerners become advocates of what they called the strenuous life. This is Theodore Roosevelt's project. Test yourself. Go out to the frontier. Go out and hunt big game. And that's what motivates a lot of people to allow their children to take part in this, uh, you know, very dangerous sport. Football was going to teach modernity, leadership. As the U.S. was reaching for global power. Colleges in the South fielded football teams as early as the 1880s. But the first game bearing significance to what became the Southeastern Conference was played in 1892. Georgia against the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Alabama, better known today as Auburn. George Petrie is a classics professor. The classics were the Greek ideals of a sound mind and a sound body, the Olympic Games. That manliness was not to be diminished by notions that spirituality was better than manliness. And so he goes to the football game, he's just astounded because it's something that a classicist mind can understand. It's plays and 
and organized teams because it's scientific football. Petrie came back and started the first football team here and his classmate from Hopkins, who was at the University of Georgia, started the first team there. So they decided to get up a game. Georgia fans, I think, were maybe a little overconfident because they had already played a game against Mercer. And the score in the game officially is 50 to nothing. But years later, one of the players on that team told our historian that the score was wrong. Said the scorekeeper missed two touchdowns when he went across the street to buy some booze. The next game was Auburn, played in Atlanta, in Piedmont Park. And it was big. I mean, it was big headlines, not just the sports. It was the headlines of April. Georgia brought uh, its mascot, which was a goat. An Atlanta newspaper called it the social event of the season. Auburn won 10-0. The alumni and fans were so disappointed that they barbecued the goat. It was the first tailgate at Georgia, they say. So that was the last time the GOAT. The GOAT was only the mascot for two games. A little less than three years after that game, a chemistry professor at Vanderbilt, Dr. William Dudley, spearheaded the founding of the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Its stated purpose, the development and purification of college athletics throughout the South. Dudley was obsessed with football. He'd go to football practices. He went to every pep rally. He knew every football player by their first names. At its peak, the SIAA would have as many as 27 member schools, including a pair of natural rivals. Alabama and Auburn. Today, more than 125 years later, the rivalry between those same two schools endures. Part of the foundation of college football in the South, and truly, a football period. But the very first time Auburn played Alabama was 1893. Roughly 5,000 people watched that day when Auburn and Alabama met on a field in Birmingham. Auburn won 32-22. It was a big deal that the upstart lower-class school beat the elite school. Alabama was the antebellum flagship state university where the sons of the planter elite went as a marker of class status. And Auburn was a technical school, engineering, agriculture, forestry. It was a different set of folks came to Auburn than went to Alabama. They came back in 1894 and Alabama had hired six ringers. The referee recognized a couple of them as former uh, UNC players, but four of the others slipped through. The faculty and trustees at Alabama were so embarrassed. The administration's response was to marginalize the sport. The Alabama football team was banned from traveling starting in 1896. 
and the Auburn-Alabama rivalry wouldn't resume until 1900. Auburn just so completely outclassed Alabama. Auburn won the game 53-5, to but Alabama partisans regarded this as a great victory because Alabama had actually scored a touchdown, which were worth five points back then. There was a state legislator who was at the game, Temple Siebels. He was an Alabama fan. He tossed his hat onto the field in salute of this Alabama touchdown. The Auburn players got angry at him. They start getting in his face. So Siebels reaches into his coat pocket, pulls out a revolver, brandishes the revolver at the Auburn team and says, don't one of you come any closer. Auburn would continue to hold the upper hand in the rivalry from there winning seven of its first 11 games against Alabama overall before a contentious tie in 1907. Alabama was a wannabe. Auburn did not want to play Alabama because simply by getting out there on the field with them, they conferred legitimacy on them. There was some significant violence during the game. They used the violence as a pretext for the 40-year pout, is what one journalist called it. They got into a disagreement over money. Auburn wanted to bring so many players and pay a certain per diem. Alabama wanted to bring a different number of players. Alabama and Auburn, not seeing eye to eye, go figure. Either way, the rivalry went dormant. The schools wouldn't play each other again until 1948. Both sides got their dander up and got their pride up. Pride goeth before the fall. And that series fell for 41 years. John Heisman was torn. The graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School loved coaching football, but he also needed to make a living. He's very uncomfortably middle class. He's always trying to look for an edge. He's always trying to make a little money here and there. He became a tomato farmer in East Texas and apparently wasn't a very good tomato farmer. And his uh, crops were drying up in the East Texas dust. And then he got an offer from Auburn. They had contacted the University of Pennsylvania and said, can you recommend a football coach? So in 1895, he left his farm behind and headed to Auburn. The latest Ivy League product to capitalize on the growing passion for college football in the South. There were literally hundreds of football coaches who came from the North to the South. This was the only way that Southerners could find competent coaching to literally teach them the sport because there were no prep school football programs, no high school football programs in most counties, no high schools. He had to teach them all the formations, teach them all the plays. It was a slow process, but within five years, he turned Auburn into a a pretty good Southern power. And in 1896, Georgia Tech came here to play the first game ever played on the Auburn campus. They came by train, as everybody traveling by train in those days. 
Auburn students that night got out and they put pig grease all over the railroad tracks. And when the tech team train came in and tried to stop, the wheels started spinning and they spun halfway to Lotopoca, which was five miles away. And the team had to walk back to Auburn, walk up a hill to get to the, the place where the game was played. There are rumors that John Heisman may have been sitting in the top of Truman's drugstore looking at all that, but of course Heisman never had anything to do with it. And Auburn won big. The next year, Georgia Tech wouldn't come back to Auburn because of that. When they did come back, the president of Auburn said any student who was out by that railroad track would be expelled. So the students marched down there in their pajamas and had a pep rally. And for the next 80 years or so, every day of the Tech game, Auburn's freshmen would march through the streets of Auburn wearing their pajamas, hollering, wreck tech, wreck tech. Fans' fervor was an early part of the game, but so too was its extraordinary brutality, with players wearing little or no padding, some growing their hair long for just a shred of protection. It was pretty brutal football at the turn of the century. One year it was 18 deaths in football. Football was pretty much a rugby scrum back then, and everybody was just uh, not in the middle of the field. In 1897, a halfback for Georgia named Richard Von Gammon was fatally injured in a game against Virginia. He went into a pileup and came down and landed on his chin. He suffered a subdural hematoma and died the next morning. Warren Candler, who was the Methodist Bishop of Georgia, who had been carrying on a crusade against football for years already, takes the political momentum, the outrage against football, and he gets his allies in the Georgia State Legislature to jam through a bill making football a felony punishable by a year on the state chain gang. Only the governor's signature was needed. Evangelicals were against football for all of the usual reasons. It was too violent. People went to big football games, students went there and they got drunk and they gambled. But there was also a theological spin to it in this conservative, biblical, literalist interpretation, the body is considered sinful. Bodily exercise profiteth little, saith the Apostle Paul. The mother of the player that died appealed to the governor that he would never want to be the one that would be responsible for outlawing a game that he loved so much. Governor W.Y. Atkinson, who was a progressive, he was one of these New South leaders, he vetoed it. One of the key things that he said is, what will the Yankees think of us? They'll think we're a bunch of backwood rubes. Secularism and progressivism had prevailed over the evangelical voices. The yearning to take back the South by mirroring the North 
had saved football and the tales and traditions already forming around it. Swanee, the University of the South, sits atop 13,000 acres of the Cumberland Plateau in southern Tennessee. It's a small Episcopal college with an unlikely chapter in its history. A chapter that unfolded at the dawn of football's rise in the South. when the Swanee Tigers were a force of unmatched dominance on the field. No, this is gumbo today. On a Saturday so many decades later. Duck and on Dewey gumbo to be exact. The scenes and the spirit here are familiar. It's homecoming, everybody's back. We're celebrating. Hopefully we can get the win. Yeah. Last game for the seniors, a team that we would dearly love to defeat. I know you're going to give it all you've got. We're proud of you. Let's bring it home a winner today. The players for this Tiger squad are the descendants of a team that built an indelible piece of early Southeastern football history team forever remembered as the Iron Men. This was a remarkable time in the history of Swanee. The old lingered. Memories of the beginning still persisted. The honored dead were still remembered in the homes of the living. Robert Red Lancaster, the Swanee Purple newspaper. Yeah, these are privileged men, but you know, it's the South in the 1890s. Uh, still, even those of privilege don't have a lot of money. No running water, heat from fireplaces, no telephones. The calendar even reflected the Spartanness. Uh, at Sewanee, the academic year uh, ran from uh, approximately March through December. Uh, the three months off meant we didn't have to heat buildings during the cold winter months. Nobody is going to come there and pay to watch a game. It takes a couple of hours just to get down to Chattanooga. So Swanee had to play virtually all of their games on the road. But where some might see hardship, others identify opportunity. Like Luke Lee, the one in the business hat, Swanee's team manager. Luke Lee was this very, very ambitious young man. He scheduled the games, he handled all the money, he arranged for the travel. He was gonna get somewhere and get there in a hurry. He scheduled this itinerary that we just look at as crazy today. Five games in six days. Texas couldn't get any schools to play their team. So they offered Sewanee what was at the time a kind of, uh, you know, a pot of gold to come play there, $700. 
But he knows that if he takes the team all the way out there and then all the way back, they'll end up probably losing money. So what he does is he schedules games on the way back. As the team prepared for their massive trip in the fall of 1899, they were already 4-0 and unscored upon all season. The players left Swanee with two barrels of their own drinking water from the local mountain springs, but forgot their cleats back on campus. Luke Lee sent word back to school and the cleats were sent on a later train. The Texas Longhorns would be their first opponents. A crowd of roughly 2,000 surrounded the field. The Swanee Purple reported, we have met the enemy and they are ours and the team played a typically flawless game, winning 12-0. The Tigers then took an overnight train to Houston, where they faced Texas A&M. Two Swanee touchdowns were the game's only scores in a 10-0 victory. The battalion, the Aggie Campus newspaper, reported A&M went down in honorable defeat before the mighty Swanee team. Swanee then went on to New Orleans, where they would be without their captain, Diddy Siebels, who'd sustained a severe cut to his forehead against Texas. The most recognized player was Diddy Siebels, a swift, fierce running back and talented kicker. During the 1899 year, uh, if you look through the, the purple, the newspapers, you'll see that he's actually selling shoes on the side to pay for his tuition. The Tigers hardly missed Siebel's against Tulane, posting another shutout, 23-0. 80 miles up the road from there was Baton Rouge. The LSU football program was in just its seventh year of existence, and Swanee romped to a 34-0 victory with the returning Siebels scoring at least two touchdowns, the school paper admittedly losing track from there. The team next crossed back into Tennessee, and after a bit of sightseeing in Memphis, donned their moleskin vests again to meet Ole Miss in a neutral location, Billings Park. By the time they played Ole Miss, newspaper men recognized the news value in what had been done, that it was turned into this historic event. The Memphis Appeal reported, as the bandaged boys in purple took their positions, Coach Souter applied fresh plaster over the cut that Siebel's received in the Texas game. Final score, 12-0, Swanee. 2,500 miles, five games, five shutout wins in six days. I would give my all to thee. And on the seventh day, they rested. The southern papers of the time lauded Swanee's string of triumphs, but the northern press, the great publicists of college football, ignored the story. A few weeks later, 
the Tigers left home again for Montgomery, Alabama to play Auburn, coached by John Heisman. Alabama students were not going to miss a chance to cheer against Auburn, so 200 of them came down on trains from Tuscaloosa to Montgomery, cheering against Auburn, cheering for Swanee, because Swanee is the elite school. Swanee's the blue blood school. 4,000 fans circled the field and filled the stands. It demonstrated that football, college football games could generate, could pull uh, very large crowds. Probably not many of them even know what the game of football is, but they're there principally for one reason. They've all bet money. As they were about to start the game, the Suwannee coach, Billy Souter, noticed that the Auburn players all had um, loops sewn onto their football pants. Players could grab the loops and form these massing plays and bulldoze the ball forward. Suter objected, and the referees come out with scissors and, and cut them off. So it started off uh, on a sour note, let us say. By all accounts, Auburn dominated the flow of the game. The game was ugly, it was dirty. So there was nothing uh, noble or honorable uh, about this game. Auburn had been known for playing very rough football. So Swanee comes in and they decide, well, we're meeting fire with fire. We're not going to let Auburn get the drop on us. So they're going in cleats first. When Coach Billy Souter asked one of his fallen men, are you fellas going to roll over this afternoon? The player responded, Coach, We've never seen anything like this. There's fist fights breaking out on the field. There are fist fights breaking out in the stands. Alabama students are cheering for Swanee. John Heisman is on the field yelling at all of the people in the stands who are heckling him. And it's just an absolute fiasco. Swanee gave up two touchdowns the first points yielded by their defense all season long. But they rallied to grab an 11-10 victory. John Heisman got so angry about that game, calls the referee all sorts of names, and then engages in a war of words with the Birmingham News and the Birmingham Age Herald and the Montgomery Advertiser. They basically refer to him as this low-class guy at the low-rent school. He does not belong in our gentlemanly sport of football. And this was what precipitated John Heisman's exit from Auburn. When Walter Riggs, the athletic director at Clemson, comes to him with an offer shortly after that, Heisman is, boom, he's out of there. Swanee, meanwhile, was on to Atlanta to play for the championship of the South against North Carolina. North Carolina is the best team in the Upper South in 1899. Swanee's the best team in the Deep South. And who shows up but John Heisman? And John Heisman had just gotten his entire payday from Auburn for the season. It was like four or $500, which was a lot of money back then. He's betting all comers that North Carolina is going to win this game. 
including the Swanee players. The Swanee players put all of their money together, you know, throwing out dollar bills, fives, change, anything they can get, because they're by God gonna take some of John Heisman's money. Swanee punted 15 times on the day, but also managed a field goal, then worth the same five points as a touchdown. Ultimately, the game would be decided on a goal line stand anchored by Tiger star Orman Simpkins. Carolina was right on the goal line and had a very talented running back, Kohler. He was famous for being almost literally thrown over the line by his teammates. The Sewanee players were prepared for it. Five times North Carolina tried for the end zone, and five times they failed. With an injured Simpkins leading the stand, he later accused Lee and Souter of making him play even when he was hurt. Several years later, he ended up having both of his legs amputated from the injuries he sustained as a football player. In the second operation, he died. Swanee wrested victory from the stubborn 11 of North Carolina and placed the proud purple of the Tennessee College at the summit of the championship pole. The Atlanta Constitution. All these years later, Swanee, the University of the South, plays its football in Division III. The Tigers still play on McGee Field, christened 1891 making it the oldest gridiron in use in the South. They lost this game to rival Center College, but the pride endures for a long ago legendary football power. I can go and speak to a group of community members or alumni and talk about the great success of our tennis team, our golf team, our lacrosse team. But inevitably, someone will say, well, you know, all that's well and good, but let's talk about football. Even here at a small liberal arts college, this is the South, son, and what matters, what matters most is football. John Heisman had a stint at Clemson between 1900 and 1903. And in that last year, they defeated Georgia Tech 73 to nothing. The Tech football boosters, who were actually a very powerful group of civic leaders in Atlanta, they were just tired of their hometown college football team getting embarrassed like that. He was making about $1,000 at Clemson. And Georgia Tech said enough and went out and hired him, paid him $2,500. Plus 30% of the gate receipts. This was absolutely unprecedented. It was later ruled illegal, but Heisman was figuring out the angles. He arranged a side deal with the Atlanta Constitution that he would write a weekly column. 
and he got paid by the word. And they didn't really understand that this football coach wasn't going to turn in three or four hundred words every week. They are just interminable. They go on and on and on and on. And boy, he really got his money's worth. John Heisman wasn't the only coach who created a seismic shift in Southern college football in the year 1904. There was also Mike Donahue, a Yale man, who went to Auburn and would build a number of dominant teams there over 18 seasons. And even more significantly, there was Dan McGugan, who'd played at Michigan under the legendary Fielding Yost, and who took over at Vanderbilt that year as well. Dan McGugan was one of the very rare Northern coaches who came south and built a life for himself. Coach McGugan was a strategist. He was a motivator. Most importantly, he was a pure gentleman. He earned his living practicing law. He would leave the office, his downtown office, at four in the afternoon and then go out to Vanderbilt. He married a Southern girl. His old coach, Fielding Yost, was the best man at his wedding. And then Yost fell in love with the sister of McGugan's wife. And they got married within two or three months of each other. They were close, close, close. He helped perfect the onside kick, and he used pulling guards for the first time to lead interference. He took Yost's system that was predicated on speed. And not just speed during a play, but speed in that they ran play after play after play in a hurry-up offense. McGugan went undefeated in his first season with the Commodores and would win 11 conference titles in his 30 seasons overall. He marked his dominance on the South. John Heisman said that he wasn't going to play, he wasn't going to schedule Vanderbilt anymore because Vanderbilt was in a class by itself. But it was McGugan's eagerness to clash with the best of the North that was more pivotal, inching Southern football toward equal ground with the game's original pioneers. They went up in 1910 and challenged the previous year's national champion, Yale Bulldogs, and they held them scoreless. It was a 0-0 tie. Vanderbilt players were absolutely livid after the game. The Yale players had insulted them, had called them a bunch of hicks and rednecks, but that scoreless tie against Yale was really one of the kind of major milestones in intersectional football. These are the gladdest of possible words. Yale was unable to score. Sweeter than song from the clear singing birds, Yale was unable to score. Words that are sweeter than nectar and honey, sweeter by far than the jungle of money. Words that are roseate and golden and sunny, Yale was unable to score. Grantland Rice, Vanderbilt, class of 1901. The 1915 team was the point-a-minute team. They scored 514 points in 510 minutes. The star of that team was a sophomore, Irby Rabbit Curry. 
He was one of the greatest quarterbacks ever in the South. He weighed 140 pounds. And everybody looked at him and said, kid, how are you going to play football? And he said, watch me. He was small, he was tough, and he had heart. When war broke out, he was one of the first to enlist, and he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps. A year later, in August of 1918, Lieutenant Irby Curry was shot down in aerial combat over the French countryside. When he learned of his former player's death, Dan McGugan sent a telegram to the Nashville Tennessean. During the four years of my intimate association with Irby Curry, I never heard him utter a word his mother might not hear and approve. A game sportsman and scholar, truly, he was as gentle as a dove. He had a lion's heart and now a hero's death. Poor little rabbit, how he pulls at the heartstrings of all who knew him and therefore honored and loved him tenderly. Coach McGugan in his law office had a portrait of Abraham Lincoln, a portrait of Rabbit Curry, and a portrait of Robert E. Lee. Another undersized football star in the South to serve in World War I was Kirk Newell, who quarterbacked Auburn's undefeated 1913 squad. Deemed decades later by one measure as national champions, Newell gained more than 1,700 yards over eight games that season. And then five years later, as a lieutenant in the Army, offered a whole other class of heroics on the battlefield. Laying his body across a hand grenade, trying to save his men. He was severely wounded. 36 pieces of metal were removed from his body. Only his canteen saved his life he'd be honored with the Distinguished Service Award. Back home, universities reduced their football schedules during the war. But at Georgia Tech, John Heisman's team was loaded with star players, and he wasn't going to let an opportunity pass. Heisman had never really fulfilled the promise with which he came to Atlanta until he builds these really great teams in 1916 and 1917. He was not giving this team up. War, no war. The coach should be masterful and commanding, even dictatorial. He has no time to say please or mister. At times, he must be just a little short of a czar, John Heisman. Heisman was a martinet. He was an absolute authoritarian. But he was also an orator. He was an actor in the off-season. He supplemented his income that way. He would use a megaphone at practice, and he would yell at them, try to inspire them, berate them, do whatever he could. Between November 1914 and November 1918, Georgia Tech played 33 games and lost none of them. Two ties were the only blemishes. In the spring of 1916, Georgia Tech's baseball team lost to Cumberland College 22 to nothing, and Heisman was convinced that Cumberland College 
had used professional ringers. The two schools were scheduled to play football that following fall. Well, Cumberland College dropped football uh, quietly, and when Heisman found out, he was so hell-bent on getting revenge that he told Cumberland College they'd have to pay $3,000 in damages if they didn't play the game. And so Cumberland put a student in charge of the football program. He went from fraternity house to fraternity house to find players. Heisman didn't care who the players were. He was going to get his revenge. And the game still stands as the most lopsided contest in college football history. He just started running up the score. And the Cumberland players, they basically quit. At one point in the game, a Cumberland College player runs off the field, goes to the wrong sideline, sits on Georgia Tech's bench. Heisman sees him. He says, son, you're on the wrong sideline. He says, I can't go back in. Heisman puts a coat around him and tells him to sit there and not let anybody notice he's there. Cumberland came to Heisman and said, can we quit this early, please? And he at least, after he had run up 222 points, he said, yeah, okay, that's good enough. 222, that sounds good. The 1917 Golden Tornado team was considered Heisman's best team and one of the greatest teams in, in Southern football history. The Heisman got Joe Guyon, the Native American from New Mexico who had played at Carlisle Institute who was one of the best running backs in the country. They finished 9-0. and Outscored their opponents 491-17. to Maybe there's an asterisk by it because it was in the middle of World War I and a lot of school's players were fighting overseas. Yes, it was a great team. How great was it? Nobody's ever going to be certain. In 1919, John Heisman and his wife Evelyn got divorced. One stipulation of their agreement was that Heisman not live in Atlanta so that Evelyn's social standing not be stained. So Heisman left Georgia Tech and retreated north to his alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, to coach there for the 1920 season. Over the next decade, as intersectional games became more common, a gentleman's agreement would settle into place that schools from the North or Midwest would sit their black players in games against Southern teams. Far beyond football, Jim Crow laws and segregation were in full force, and African Americans were moving out of the South looking for jobs. Great Migration was African-Americans fleeing um, um, southern um, cities and southern states to escape the terrorism, the lynchings in search of a better life. When we talk about the era of football previous to World War II, previous to the 50s and 60s, it's very important that we remember that there were a lot of very talented people who were left out of the game simply because of racial politics, simply because of white supremacy.
In the early years of the game, everything about Southern college football was understood to be inferior, including the playing facilities. Northern schools had their ambitious, even iconic venues, like the Yale Bowl, modeled after the Roman Colosseum. But in the South, there was nothing of the sort. At least until 1922, when Vanderbilt's Dan McGugan led his team onto the field for another battle with his brother-in-law, Fielding Yost's Michigan Wolverines, at brand new Dudley Field in Nashville. Vanderbilt built the first stadium in 1922. That was the first big time stadium in the South. Pointing that day in the direction of a cemetery with the graves of Confederate soldiers near the stadium, McGugan strove to inspire his team with his pregame speech. Out there lie the bones of your grandfathers, he said. And down there on that field are the grandsons of the Yankee soldiers who put them there. What's ironic about it is Dan McGugan's dad fought for an Ohio regiment in the, on the northern side in the Civil War. Fielding Yost's dad fought for a Virginia regiment on the southern side. And after the game, Yost was told about McGugan's speech, and he was not pleased at all, and he said, McGugan, with that phony accent, had never been any more south than Toledo, Ohio, before he came to Vanderbilt. Fielding Yost might have been irritated by another matter post-game as well. McGugan's Commodores were celebrating a 0-0 tie against his mighty Wolverines. I think the, the image that sticks in my mind is those trains traveling you know, across Alabama and Mississippi and heading west. Reconstruction is still a fairly open wound at this time. The Great Depression is just about to lay hands on people. And not a whole lot good happened between Reconstruction and the Depression. Bleak, forlorn, and hungry, and desperate. And we're talking about the working people here, not to gentry. In December 1925, the Alabama Crimson Tide embarked on a journey west to Pasadena, California. As the undefeated Southern Conference champions, they'd been invited to play in the prestigious New Year's Day postseason game, only recently dubbed the Rose Bowl. These college boys much of them who were college boys because they could play football, board a train and ride through their towns and wave from those old-fashioned cabooses and platforms to cheers. People, a lot of them were barefoot, but they have a champion. And the champion is going out to this shining Pacific coast, and it's going to play the best in the country in football. Again, it's romantic. Maybe it's purely romantic, but it was 
needed. The train ride was 2,000 miles. They'd stop periodically to practice, motivated perhaps by the knowledge that they'd hardly been the first choice of the game's selection committee to take on the powerful Washington Huskies. But Dartmouth, Princeton, Colgate, and Michigan had already all passed, concerned that the game had become too commercial. So Alabama got the call, despite the concern of one committee member who said, I've never heard of Alabama as a football team, and I can't take a chance on mixing a lemon with a rose. There's some debate about whether Alabama is worthy of going to the Rose Bowl, because the assumption then was, well, you have a good record, but you really don't have any pedigree. Well, they're from the South. They can't be that good, can they? Alabama went out there as three touchdown underdogs. And that debate just infuriates not just people at the University of Alabama, it infuriated people at Auburn. They were representing not only Alabama, they were representing the South. Everybody down here was from Alabama, even the Auburn people. And it's kind of interesting that the President of Auburn sends a telegram to George Denny uh, congratulating him for being in the Rose Bowl and basically saying, in so many words, go out there and kick Yankee butt. It would be a pinnacle of George Denny's tenure as the university's president, a tenure that had begun in 1912. George Denny was determined to build a football program and in that way build enrollment and then build revenues. So football was a means of public relations. When Denny had arrived at Alabama, the population of the student body hovered around 400. By the time he retired in 1936, it would number close to 5,000. George Denny was the ultimate in micromanagement. Denny controlled the finances. He controlled the slush fund that provided the uh, tuition and living expenses for players. He went on the practice field every day. Several coaches go in and out. They don't like Denny's micromanagement. Wallace Wade was an assistant coach to Dan McGugan at Vanderbilt. Denny recruited Wade to come to Tuscaloosa in 1924. Wade won the Southern Conference Championship the following year. Alabama had a great halfback, Johnny Mac Brown, great quarterback in Pooley Hubert. Pooley Hubert was from Meridian, Mississippi. Pooley Hubert, I've said, talked to him just like me and you. When I was a kid growing up, we'd set up three or four o'clock in the morning. There wasn't no television. There wasn't no damn social media. That's the way, that's the way, that's the way you learned. He went to the University of Virginia, but he didn't like to wear a coat and tie. So he started back to Meridian, hoboing on the train. He stopped in Atlanta and talked to Coach Alexander said, do you need a quarterback and a linebacker? He said, no, said, I really don't. He said, but Coach Wade may need you in Tuscaloosa. 
and gave him the money to catch a train from Atlanta to Tuscaloosa. This was the last Rose Bowl before the nationwide radio broadcasts. And so the way that they broadcast live results was to do it by telegraph and then to uh, announce it to a big crowd. They roped off Dexter Avenue in Montgomery, for example. The newspaper coverage, they talked about how downcast they were at halftime. They were downcast because Washington was leading 12-0, seemingly on its way to proving all the Alabama naysayers right. The news coming over the telegraph was all bad. Then some of them actually went home. Southern teams, they're just not good enough. Alabama should never, ever, ever have been invited. But the tide exploded for 20 points in the third quarter, with Pooley Hubert and Johnny Mac Brown leading the way. Offensive displays like that were pretty rare against very good teams. They used the forward pass to do it in an era when teams mostly only used it in a desperation manner. The Crimson Tide would hold on for a 2019 win. And Alabama's victory was a landmark moment. It said, football is transcendent for us. They win this stunning upset, and they get back on that train, and they take a long time to get back to Alabama. By the time it reaches the South, you have people lined up at train stations, cheering, because Alabama's victory was a victory for them. It was the first time that the South had, had claimed superiority in anything since the war. This Rose Bowl was at once a vindication of the South and sticking it to those Yankees. But it was also kind of a way of saying, we are not this ragtag, redneck rabble. We are not the barefoot, sharecropping, hookworm-infested South of the national image. We're just like you. The game turned Pooley Hubert and Johnny Mac Brown into huge stars, with Brown going on to a glamorous career in Hollywood. For decades, the rest of the nation had looked down its collective nose at places like Alabama. But football, like nothing else in the country, was revealing itself as a remarkable leveler, a means for the South to let America know how far it had come. So many years later, it almost gets lost in college football's expansive national landscape. But make no mistake, in the state of Mississippi, the bitterness between Ole Miss and Mississippi State is as fierce as any interstate rivalry anywhere. Tell me a little bit about this sign. We wanted a banner that everybody could just, you know, everybody could recognize, everybody could identify with, agree with. 
I can't tell you how many times I've read a column by somebody saying it's gotten out of hand, that the rivalry is more bitter now than it ever was. Well, the truth of the matter is it's always been bitter. It was bitter before they even played football. Football just gave them a lawful way of trying to hurt each other. It all began in 1901 with a game delayed more than a half hour while Ole Miss, the school of the state's landed gentry, argued in protest that Mississippi A&M, that so-called cow college, was playing non-students. A&M would win 17-0. 25 years later, in 1926, the feud was still raging. Mississippi State was hosting the game, and Ole Miss won the game, and they were going to tear down the goalposts. Well, the state people weren't having any of that. And so they came out of the stands with uh, wooden chairs and everything and started beating on the Ole Miss players. A fistic combat ensued, but the melee was put to a stop by the more sober-minded before the Aggie Chair Brigade got into serious action. The Mississippian, December 3rd, 1926. And so the two student leaderships of both schools got together and decided to have a trophy to be presented at the end of the game so they wouldn't be tearing down each other's goalposts. The game became known as the Battle for the Golden Egg, which later evolved into the Egg Bowl. Some 400 miles northeast in Knoxville, the Tennessee Volunteers are used to winning, even spoiled by it. 16 conference titles and six national championships will do that to you. The first season the Vols fielded a football team was 1891, but their identity really originated in 1926 when a 34-year-old officer from the United States Military Academy was hired as their head coach. His name was Robert Neeland. The reason they chose Tennessee was because they had nowhere to go but up. He was hired to beat Vanderbilt. As hard as it may be for modern football fans to understand this, Vanderbilt was the measuring stick. Until he graduated from West Point in 1916, Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, uh, MacArthur, Patton, all of those great generals, he was in that realm. Neyland started in 26. At the time, Neyland was at West Point. He was an aide to General Douglas MacArthur. He was just a, a dominating person. He would get stern with you, but he never lost his poise. You would never see him throw his visor down. We're going to war. You got the strategy. Now it's a tactical thing. He felt like that the military tactics and football tactics were really basically one and the same. He just devoured books of military strategy from, from previous centuries. And he applied that to his defense. And he applied that to his attack on offense but it also was about engineering. His playbook looked like an architect's drawings. 
It was very precise. He looked at football's math problem. He always had a watch. He'd time their kickers in the pregame warm-up, and he'd say, we can block a kick. Neyland's Vols lost to Vanderbilt in 1926 and then tied them in 27 before finally getting the win in 28. He came here to beat Vanderbilt. But pretty soon Alabama became the big game. In 1928, they were playing in Tuscaloosa. People were taking bets that they'd score more touchdowns than we would first downs. And my dad was asking the head coach Alabama if he would mind uh, not even playing the second half, just stopping at halftime. Gene McKever returned the opening kickoff, 98 yards, to a touchdown. They won 15-13, and that's the day Tennessee became a prominent football team. That game was the coming out party, and it set a tone for the Tennessee-Alabama rivalry that continues to this day. While the volunteers were becoming kings of the South, Georgia was taking aim at an iconic program in the North. But while their ties to Yale ran deeper than just their shared bulldog nickname, by 1927, Georgia had been to New Haven, Connecticut four times, losing on each occasion. All of our early presidents were Yale men. They had gone to Yale and gotten their degrees and came back. If you walk around old college, where the Hurdy Field was, that whole area, those first four buildings were replicas of, of originally Yale buildings. In the second game of the 27 season, Georgia shocked the Elis, 14-10. It was slaying a giant. We finally beat Yale. And it maintained that undefeated season. The Dream and Wonder team. Two months later, the Bulldogs would be the top-ranked team in the country as they entered their season finale at arch-rival Georgia Tech. The fans came down on the train. They had all the banners of all the victories. And they're going to the Tech game to beat Tech and go to a bowl game. The lore of that 27 Tech game is that Tech hosed down the field to slow the Georgia team down. We had fast backs, and that quagmire just kept us from being able to realize our potential. Tech beats them 12 to nothing. And after that loss, the, the fans were just, I mean, they were sick. Your biggest rival, your biggest game, you play on the road every year. After that loss, Dr. Sanford vowed to do something about it. He raised money by getting Georgia fans to sign $1,000 notes. The stadium cost $300,000, even using prison labor. The initial construction of the stadium was about 30,000 seats. I mean, 30,000 people, can you imagine? The dedication game was a huge deal. I mean, Yale doesn't go down to Georgia. Oh, by the way, it only happened once. The first game I can recall, and I recall it vividly, was the Yale game in 1929. 
I recall Yale coming in on the train. Everybody in town was down there to welcome them to Athens. Yale's band put our band to shame. The Yale band paraded from the train station, struck up Dixie, and then they got an ovation. Dan McGill, Atlanta Journal. Georgia had lost to Oglethorpe, and Yale had just won like 89 to nothing. And so they just thought they were going to come down here and, and, and kill Georgia. You've heard all the stories of how we dressed in wool and wilted in the sun. Well, let me tell you, that is the truth. Our manager brought wool jerseys and wool stockings, and by kickoff, we were drained. Waldo Green, Yale captain, 1929. They're wearing their winter jerseys. What were they thinking? Their equipment manager was from Florida. He should have known better. But Georgia, led by end Vernon Catfish Smith, still had to contend with a future college football Hall of Fame tailback for Yale, nicknamed the Mighty Adam, Albie Booth. He was really a tiny guy. And um, Catfish was a pretty big guy. Catfish Smith was a Macon boy. He got his nickname by biting off the head of a catfish on a bet during the game. He threw Albie Booth for a big loss. Albie got up and said, that doesn't go around here. And Catfish said, no, Albie, it's you that doesn't go around here. <laughs> Catfish Smith scored all points. A touchdown pass. It's an extra point recovering a block kick and a safety. In fact, a New York paper had a headline, Catfish 15, Yale nothing. Well, that was a marvelous victory, not too long after the Civil War. If you had fought when you were 20, you could have still been alive. There could have been someone in that stadium that fought in the Civil War. After the game, the freshmen went to ring the campus bell, a tradition dating back to the 1890s. Georgia had staged a Southern party at their new stadium. Their guests from the North were gracious and respectful, and the memories would last a long time. In the dedication game, there were 30,000 tickets. The tickets were $3 a piece. Do the math. 90 grand. After the game, there was a dinner at the Georgian Hotel. President Sanford gave the Yale president a check for half the gate, $45,000. The Yale president tore it up right in front of him and said, no, we'll take exactly what we gave y'all every time y'all came north, which was expenses. The $45,000 would go towards paying off the cost of Sanford Stadium, one pack of bulldogs assisting another. The very next year, 1930, down in Fordyce, Arkansas, a high school senior led his team to a state championship. Paul Bryant had been born in one of the state's poorest cavities back in 1913. 
on a plot of land known as Morrow Bottom. You know, he lived in this little tiny house with all his family. His father was an invalid, and he carried the burden of that psychologically. His father fell ill when Paul was just a boy, and the dominant force in his life became his strong-willed mother, who scrapped out a living driving a wagon back and forth from Morrow Bottom to sell vegetables in nearby Fordyce. On Saturdays, he would ride into a town with his mother, even in the coldest parts of the winter. And they would heat bricks and sit on them just to be able to survive the, the wagon trip into town. To say humble is almost uh, an understatement. And he knew that invariably he was going to run into a bunch of the, as he would say, city boys who would tease him about his raggedy clothes, about his country ways, about his poverty. Those young boys had the power to make Paul Bryant feel small and insignificant. Well, he'd go back to Fordyce every now and then, and of course he'd be the toast of the town, and he'd say, I still remember a lot of them and how they treated me. He said, I haven't forgotten. Even when he was the embodiment of Southern pride, he was driven by the desire to get away and transcend those hateful voices. Because he was determined that nobody would ever be able to make him feel small and insignificant ever again. When he was a young teenager, Bryant earned himself a nickname. A man came through town with a bear and said he would give a, a dollar to uh, whoever would wrestle it. And so uh, Bryant made quite clear that he was man enough he could do that. He said, everybody talks about me wrestling the bear for a dollar a minute. He said, I wasn't wrestling for a dollar a minute. I was wrestling to impress a girl. So he gets on the stage at the Lyric Theater and wrestles that thing. And after a while, the uh, promoter is thinking, well, there's not quite enough action here. So he reaches over and takes the muzzle off the bear. The next thing you know, takes a big bite out of Bryant's ear. Then all pandemonium broke out, and he said, and I jumped off the stage. And he said he hit that, hit one of those seats, and he pulled up his pants leg, right leg, pulled up his pants leg and showed me. He said, I've still got the scar where I hit that thing. He said, I didn't impress that girl at all. <laughs> and he never got his dollar, but he got a nickname. Bear Bryant was in the eighth grade when the Fordyce football coach spotted him. He was already six feet, one inch tall. Had one pair of shoes, and he put cleats on them to play football. <laughs> His outlook must have been pretty desperate. He felt trapped in that little town, in which he's considered on the wrong, such, such on the wrong side of the tracks that, that uh, parents wouldn't let their daughters date him. He's a big football hero, but a lot of them still look down on him. 
football in the South was the one way in which you could move from the worst kind of, of stereotypes that were dismissive of you as a human being in your family to the place where it, none of that made any difference. And Hank Crisp comes to town and offers him a lifeline. And that lifeline was a scholarship to the University of Alabama, which of course he was aware because of the Rose Bowl. There is one bus out of town, and that one bus is a football bus. And if you don't get on that bus, you're gonna, you'll never be anywhere but Morrow Bottom, Arkansas. By the end of 1932, the Great Depression may have been ravaging the country, but America's growing love affair with college football was hardly flickering. And in the South, after the SIAA had given way to the smaller Southern Conference a little more than a decade earlier, 13 schools west and south of the Appalachian Spine, determined it was time to form their own alliance. From Lexington to Gainesville, from the Mississippi River and the Louisiana swamps, to the red clay of Georgia, through cities like Nashville, Knoxville, New Orleans and Atlanta, to small towns like Swanee, Tuscaloosa, Auburn, Oxford, and Starkville. The Southeastern Conference was born. The thing you gotta understand, to the people in the South, College football is not a game, it's a way of life. People plan their lives around college football season. My daughter was asked to be in several weddings during the fall over the last few years. I'm sorry, it's football season. I'm not gonna be in a wedding in football season. People try to plan their children around football season, make sure that no babies are born. It is ingrained in the culture. Through the rest of the Depression, another world war, segregation now and segregation forever, the turbulence of the civil rights movement, how long, not long, and a modern age that would produce icons, superstars, revolutionary tactics, and a remarkable rise to dominance. The history of the SEC that would unfold over the coming decades Ted, come on, all the way. would be one of the greatest sports stories ever told in America. A tale of ambition and pride, an epic that would trace the transformation of the South like perhaps no other institution ever could.